He's Black Guy Fox, and I'm just a guy who sings karaoke entirely too often. And together, we are Fox and Friends. Today, the third friend who we are talking to about creativity and social justice is Frank Turner. One, two, three, four. I know you're pumped for this episode. Why is this one such a big one for you? It's a big one for me because Frank was the artist that kind of pushed me to do the music I'm doing now. And without him, there wouldn't be the Black Guy Fucks. And the fact that he's doing this interview, the fact that we just finished playing together and lost the evenings, is it's been it's been a lot of fun. So I'm excited to have, have him on here. And speaking of fun things that you have coming up, you got a pretty packed schedule for the next little bit. What's going on? Well, buddy. May 17th through 19th, I will be in Montreal for Pusa Fest. So it'll be me, and I'll be playing alongside against Hall of Doherty, Strike Henry, Lord Jane Grace, Cat Bite, and quite a few other people. And then in, in July, July 4th weekend, Independence Day, I'll be at Kent Pennsylvania and Gilbert, PA with Lord Jane Grace. We are the Union, Kill Lincoln, Day Without Love, and so many other people. And he has tickets today. And fun fact. If you use the code Black Guy Fox, you get 10% off of your ticket. That's good to know. February 24th, I will be in Frostburg, Maryland, helping raise money for students' lunch that's in Allegheny County. And I'll be joined alongside the Downstrokes, Preston Baller, American Meat Industry, and many other people to help raise money, help to a good cause. You'll find all that info on how to donate and how to give back in the description. I hope you guys either show up or help donate to that. Any bit, any amount, any type of sharing helps. Yeah, you don't have to be local to come see, although it would be great if you did because the music's going to be great. But that $20 goes a long way to eliminating $5,000 of student lunch debt in Allegheny County, Maryland. Frank Turner, thank you so much for coming on and joining Ian and me for Fox and Friends. Thank you for having me. It's very cool to be here. I mean, when I say be here, I'm in England. You guys are in America. But thanks for having me. Well, Frank, I just like went to Brazil. How was that? Oh, it was awesome. I'd never been to South America before. And at the risk of sounding entirely like a gormless tourist, it's like, it's there. It's real. South America is like a place. You know, I, it was incredible to be there. I was mainly there for a holiday. I did have a few meetings to discuss kind of getting down there for shows to South America, generally Brazil, Argentina. Colombia, Chile, Peru, whatever. I mean, you know, I made it through 42 years without ever going to South America. And I feel kind of remiss about that now. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's a whole world unto itself. I spent the first kind of half a day kind of going, oh, this bit's a bit like America and this bit's a bit like Africa and this bit's a bit like Australia and this bit's a bit like Europe or whatever. And after a while, you just kind of go, shut up, man. Like this place is like South America is what it is. So I felt very privileged to be there. I felt very educated. And we did actually have a holiday, which is a rarity <laughs> in my schedule. So it was very nice. Yeah, we got to uh, chill out for a bit. So as a musician taking a holiday, did you see any music or do you just stay away from that as much as possible? Uh, we saw some music, but not anything from my 
end of the music world. We saw some live samba and stuff like that, which was kind of incredible. I think my wife was pretty stoked to go to a place where no one's heard of me because it meant that precisely one person recognized me on the entire holiday. And she was like, yes. in the past, like somebody asked me for a, a selfie when I was like halfway up climbing a mountain in Yosemite. And it was just like, <laughs> really dude, like now, you know, I think she was kind of, she enjoyed it being a place where there was less of that kind of stuff to, to handle. But I mean, you know, there are obviously there are some, I'm aware of some cool South American bands that I like Sepultura or whatever else, but like there's huge musical traditions there that are pretty new to me. I we were listening to loads of, um, Gil, Gilberto Gil, I think is how you pronounce his name. He's a Brazilian sort of composer songwriter guy who I encountered on the holiday and kind of blew my mind. In fact, I'm still listening to Gilberto Gil since we got home. So taking some of the vacation back with you, which is nice. Right. You talk about finding out about musicians and finding musicians in different places. I'm kind of just curious. How did you find out about Black Guy Fox? Ian, you might know the answer to this. I do, but like, I'm going to say it's probably Matt Flood's fault, right? Well, I put on my EP, Producers Lullabies. I think I'm Matt Flood sent it to you. And that's when I got in contact with me, my lost evenings. I think that is right. I think, but at the same time, in a good way, I feel like it was one of those things that was just kind of in the water for a minute suddenly. Do you know what I mean? You know, sometimes you just kind of go from never having heard of something to like eight people mention it in the space of two days. And you're kind of like, the universe is pushing me in a certain direction right here. But I mean, I love Matt Flood's pieces, uh, as I'm sure you guys do as well. He's a classic example of that thing which on which all underground music things survive, which is an, an enthusiast. Like, you know, sure, he runs a label, he puts on shows, he does this, he does that. But like at heart, he's just somebody who really, really, really cares about music and is still excited about music in a way that I think is kind of admirable because there are, you know, I mean, I'm sure we all have this, right? But I have days where I feel a little bit kind of like, like I would be okay if I just listened to kind of a bunch of nineties hardcore records forever. Uh, <laughs> and it's kind of, it's cool if there's somebody who's just like, so totally just like Ta -da, about everything new. And so, and, and he passed it on to me. So, uh, hats off to Matt Flood. And I love that you did a, a Noel Coward split on his label. Didn't you? I did with Franz Nikolai. Yeah, that was a good time. I mean, so for, uh, Franz is somebody who I'm sort of. I'm I'm slightly in awe of Franz Nikolai. Like I think he's one of the more talented people I know, and he's certainly one of the more knowledgeable and kind of intellectually formidable people I know. He his first book about touring, The Humorless Ladies of Border Control, was released around the same time that I put out my first sort of tour memoir book, The Road Beneath My Feet. And his book is a proper book that is written with proper prose, as if it was written by a proper writer. And mine is a bunch of tour stories that I wrote down. And I remember feeling kind of proud about my book. And then I read his book and went, yeah, he's a real writer. And I sort of feel like that quite often about his songwriting as well. We've talked together a lot. But while we were touring together, we had long conversations about things like the history of circus and vaudeville music hall in, in, in the United Kingdom and stuff like that. And uh, Noel Cowd came up in conversation quite a lot. I always had this theory that like Americans had a head start because American place names are more kind of sonorous. A more musical, you know, people can say like Mississippi and Tennessee, and they've got this sort of internal poetry to them. Whereas, you know, we have places called Scunthorpe and Swindon. Um, and, um, you know, and I just sort of had this view that like British place names didn't really work in song. And Franz pointed me to that song, There Are Bad Times Just Around the Corner, which is almost, it's a little bit of a flex on Noel Coward's part, to be honest, because it's just this endless list of British place names. They're out of sorts in Sunderland. Uh, you know, it, and it goes on from there and it's, and it's just like, oh, okay, you can write songs with British press names in them.
So um, it was fun to do. And speaking of songwriting, I do, I do want to ask you this. I Lost Evenings, you play the first four records and then the next one in September, you're doing the first five. Yeah. When you revisit these songs, do you find new life in songs you haven't played in a while? And do you find songs where you're like, no, I, I can stay in the vault. I won't play that anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes, to, to both. Starting with the bad stuff first, in terms of the stay in the vault thing, when we do the full album thing, I want to be completest about it for myself and for the audience as well. And I know that there are like B-sides. And sometimes you kind of get pleasantly surprised by that stuff. Like uh, last evening's just gone, we did Take That Heart in Full, which means we played a song called We Shall Not Overcome. Which is a song that, like, I've long thought has great ingredients, but isn't necessarily quite in the right order somehow. And the thing about it is that when we were working up that song, we tried it in 800,000 different structural orders. And now that we didn't get it right, essentially. And I still don't think we got it right. But we played it live and it was really fun. And everybody kind of went off. And it was just like, oh, you know, maybe we should play this song more often. That's pretty cool. But then. Uh, I mean, I kind of don't want to name names too much because every time I do mention a song of mine that I'm not as enthused by, it turns out to be the person I'm talking to's favorite song of all time. And then I feel like a dickhead. And not so much this year, but there's over the years of kind of digging out the B-sides for Lost Evenings, completest sets. There are definitely, there are some where it's like, I mean, particularly if it's a full band number where we get to the end of it and we're all like, well, that's that one back in the cupboard for another decade. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that fucker ain't coming out again anytime soon. But mo it's more a case of kind of being pleasantly surprised. I mean, I try and mix up my set list on a regular tour, but you get into kind of certain habits. There are certain things that work. There are certain moods you get into. But it's kind of cool. Lost Evenings is a cool way of shaking up that kind of stasis in a way. You know, you might kind of... Uh, the, like, for a few years ago, we started playing the song Back in the Day, which is off my first record, more often because we landed again for Lost Evenings and everyone went, fuck, man, this is a cool song. We should, like, play this. So, you know, you can kind of shake stuff off in a cool way. This was my first Lost Evenings. Ian, was it yours? It was, yeah. Um, oh, cool. Ob obviously, different experiences for both of us. Can we talk about that for a minute? Because you built something really cool and something that has legs. You just had your sixth. The seventh is going to be in Toronto. I mean, by the way, we've got, we've got locations planned for eight, nine, and ten as well, but I'm not going to tell you what they are. <laughs> Jeez. What's the evolution of that been like? Oh, it's been super cool, and I've been super grateful that it worked. I mean, it's a funny old thing because, like, on some levels, like, most bands that kind of sustain or acts or whatever word we want to use that sustain over a long period of time tend to have, like, an annual gathering thing that they do, you know, whether it's Flog and Molly with the Cruise or um, the Levelers, a British band, they have their own festival, Beautiful Days, one of the best festivals in the UK. You know, you sort of have a thing that's your thing. And it's kind of, it's, it's a cool piece of longevity if you get it right. Do you know what I mean? Um, there was a period of time in the kind of mid-2010s, whatever the fuck we're calling that decade now, um, where a few people were kind of trying to talk to me about doing something that would have been the same as, as what other people were doing. Like, hey, do you want to have a festival? And I'm like, not really, because it would be the same as the levelers if I did it like in a field, like an outdoor festival. But do you want to do a cruise ship? And it's like, that feels like it'd be a bit, bit of a cheap shot, given that... You know, I get in a boat with my friends and fucking money the whole time. So, and then the next thing that happened, there's a band from the UK called Wolf Alice. I don't know if you know those guys. They're a British kind of like indie slash punk rock band. They're awesome. Their singer used to live in my house while I was on tour. You know, we we, we were old old friends, and they they got enormously successful in the UK on their first album, and they could have played an arena show, 
at the end of the album cycle kind of thing. And they were like, that's fucking ridiculous. We've got one album. We're not going to play an arena show. Instead, they did four nights in like a 2,500 cap venue in London and had different supports each night. And I went down and was just sort of hanging out. And my friend who's their manager turned to me and said, it's almost like a mini festival, this. And I said, yes, it is, isn't it? Why don't you put that thought out of your mind and leave it in mind? And then we did the first year, I think it was the year after that, we did the first Lost Evenings in London. And the first year was kind of complete chaos. And like, you know, my touring crew kind of put it together. And we've done a million festivals, but we never put one on ourselves. And there was like, it was pretty chaotic. Like I remember on the morning of day one of the festival at about 10 a.m. Tree, my tour manager suddenly went, wristbands. And no one had thought about like color-coded wristbands for the festival. And we all were like, oh my fucking God. And like somebody got sent to a store to buy like 10,000 colored paper wristbands because we hadn't done that yet. So, you know, it gets better year on year because we're more experienced. And I think my crew take all the credit for that. I just kind of swan around feeling cool for the weekend. They actually work. But it's really cool and I'm really excited about it. And the one that's coming up in Toronto is going to be the biggest one yet. And, you know, I'm excited for future years as well. I think it's cool. It's a, it's a nice thing. The guys in the Sleeping Souls call it the annual exam because <laughs> they have to learn so many fucking songs. I, you know, I tend to know more than those guys because they kind of live in my brain because I wrote them. But at the same time, like, I also have to learn a lot of fucking songs. And, like, there is a thing, like, with every... Because we always finish with the quote-unquote greatest hit set, which is generally the songs we know best. Like with each passing night, there's a moment when we come off stage and you're just like, empty the waste bin of, of your mind. Like all of those songs can go, those chord changes can go away for a while now because, uh, and so get, the load gets lighter day on day. This is the least punk rock thing I can say, but the reason that I found your music was a long car trip with the CEO of my company. And I'm trying to convince yeah. him to make the drive up for the greatest hits night at least this year. Awesome. It's not terribly far for us. So, well, I mean, it's fun. I mean, it's cool to do. I've never done one in Canada before. I love Toronto a lot. I know it's kind of, it's near the New England kind of part of the world. I mean, I, I have also been shouted at by lots of people from the UK and Europe for doing two in a row in North America. <laughs> it, the next one won't be in North America. I'll tell you that. There we go. Well, the goal for Los Angeles is always to move around to from country to continent or? or... Yeah, yes, definitely. I mean, the thing that I liked about it as an idea was the kind of portability of the concept. I mean, we did the first one in Canada and everybody was sort of pleasantly surprised that it went well. So we did the second one in the same place just to kind of like do it better. Do you know what I mean? Like consolidate logistic lessons. So we did that and then, then we started moving it and then there was fucking pandemic. So we had to cancel 2020 and then we did 2021 we did back in Canada again mainly because no one was allowed to, no one was flying anywhere still so it was like i guess we do this one at home since then i feel like we're back in the groove now it's moving around we've done berlin we've done la and we have toronto on the list and sooner or later we will get to scunthorpe <laughs> <laughs> lost evening scunthorpe can you imagine that would be some great merch though just from that name it would, uh, yeah. There's a there's a famous thing which I don't know how true it is, but when kind of the internet and search engines was first a thing, that Scunthorpe got censored because it has the word letter C U N T in a row, and it's the name of it. It's a very old town. It's been there for hundreds of years, but they got censored apparently. With other things that you have lined up for next year, we have Lost Evenings, obviously. Let's talk about Undefeated for a little bit. Mm. So yeah. FTHC was kind of like a 
you had described as like kind of a return to punk roots. What's the vibe of Undefeated going to be like now that we've heard two singles from it? Well, hopefully the singles are kind of generally indicative of where it's going. I would say it is a punk record. I feel like in retrospect, FTHC is kind of a transitional record for me. You know, like it was made in a very odd way at an odd time during a pandemic. Never actually sat in the same room as the producer. Have still never met anyone who played drums on that record. I've spoken to them all on Zoom, but I've never actually been in the same room as anyone who drummed on FTHC because I was between drummers myself. And so, uh, and it was my last record for for Universal and... um this is the thing, I'm still trying to find the right language to talk about this in interviews, but essentially, like, I know most people don't care, and that's legit, but, like, I did five records licensed to Universal, and I, I didn't get dropped by the major label world. I completed my deal, they offered me an extension, and I told them to go hang. And I feel very empowered by that. And it's a funny thing, because I've, I, I don't even know if anyone gives a toss, basically, but it feels very cool for me, and I'm this this record is very much my kind of, like, homecoming from a kind of business point of view i mean which is the, again it's pretty unpunk in some ways to even talk about this shit but yeah i mean the new record uh, there there is a fair amount of kind of short sharp kind of my miss had said about the record when she was first listening back to the rough mixes that it sounded like we were having fun for the first time in quite a long time which i really like and i think that's hopefully been clear from what's come out so far there are some kind of more introspective, more lyrically kind of challenging songs that deal with kind of like anxiety and pain and imposter syndrome and things like that. Slightly less strident, should we say, which are coming. Um, do you know what I mean? At the moment, we've kind of like lent on one half of the record in terms of what we're sharing with the world. Um, but I just kind of wanted to like be like, let's go bum, 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 rather than here is a six minute song about imposter syndrome. But that's also on the record. So um <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I'm just, I'm really excited about it. It's our first time recording with Callum and he's, he's just ridiculously good at his instrument and, and ridiculously fun to be in a band with. He's, he's the human Swiss army knife. We've got into the habit sometimes in rehearsals of just like throwing fictitious rhythmic patterns at him just to see if he can do it. Like literally just talking complete bullshit. Like, Callum, can you like keep a seven time and there's with a sort of triplet feel in your right hand and sort of play offbeat? fives on the kick and i don't even know what these words mean and Callan kind of goes right yeah yeah and start and then he fucking does it and we're all just like oh my god i didn't even know that was a thing so you know he's very very good at his uh, at the drums is young Callan, which I <laughs> but yeah so you know it's it's uh it's it, i i'm i'm proud of it i think it's a cool record i think that it's um some i guess what i sorry i'm talking too much i guess part of Part of it for me is that like some records, I have a lot to say about kind of like the philosophical kind of imprint of the record and all the rest of it. And with this one, I'm kind of like, it's a bunch of cool songs, man. Like, I hope you like them. <laughs> one, one thing I do wonder, so I know for Be More Time, that was very dance oriented. Well, mm. and then um, in FTC, one thing I noticed that was very, there's a lot of very all spoken word elements. Like when I listen to Non-Serve Young. Sure. And Farewell to My City. Mm. What new elements are you exploring in, um, in Undefeated UVA musically? First of all, thank you for noticing that about FTHC. I was really kind of like with when I was back in the days when I was in Million Dead, I was obsessed with bands like The Fall to a degree, but The Van Pelt was the huge one for me, an amazing band from New Jersey in the 90s who I still kind of worship. And it was sort of bringing that kind of like um, Richard producing the album called it my kind of unhinged preacher voice. Um, you know, and the Resurrectionist kind of has that sort of vibe as well. It's, yeah, it's kind of atonal sort of <laughs> shouting, which, which cool. I'm into that. 
I'd say this time around, I guess there's almost the sort of the flavor that's kind of like newer on this one is there's a bit of a kind of like power pop kind of vibe going on by which I kind of mean sort of like a little bit kind of early Elvis Costello sort of thing. A um, little bit early to mid period Pinkerton era Weezer. There we go. That's what I really mean. Because it's the best album we all are. Mommy. Yeah. I mean, come on. Does anyone really disagree with that statement? And if they do, they were born in a different decade to me. But yeah, so there's a, there's a little bit of that kind of stuff kind of going along, which has been fun. But I mean, again, it's sort of like, I feel, you know, No Thank You for the Music's a fun song. A bunch of people said they think it sounds like the Wild Hearts, who are a band that I adore. And I was really stoked by that comparison because I'm not sure it was consciously in my mind, but it's totally, totally a fair cop to make that comparison for that song. There's moments in my career where I feel quite like, like, influences and stuff are quite close to the surface and there are moments when they feel like they're quite embedded and i'm just having a good time writing songs and it's again it's sort of more the more column b right now you're talking about producing a new album and new new styles and influences but you're also doing a lot of production for other artists now like i saw that grace petri i know you've done pet needs what has getting into that process been like and how much of it is like can you hear yourself on a record you produce or is that not the goal? I'm just kind of curious because I don't do any no. of this stuff. I'm, I'm just, it's yeah. I mean, I mean, first of all, I fucking love it. Like production work is awesome. It's really cool. It's a different type of creativity. It takes a little bit of a kind of a mental kind of recalibration to do it well, because it let's not waste the rest of our time together arguing about Steve Albini, but like, on a lot of levels, I feel like if you can tell who produced a record, it's a bit like, eh? Like, you know, the producer's job is to kind of bring the best out of a band, in my opinion. Now, obviously, you know, some producers are better than others and some producers are, and all the rest of it. So maybe you will. And Steve Albini has a set of techniques, which yeah, at their best are completely remarkable and, and world-beating and all the rest of it. But like, you know, you don't necessarily want to think of the producer before you think of the band, in my view. You know what I mean? Um, but nevertheless, like, I mean, uh, so I hope, I mean, I can hear what I've done on records. I mean, quite a lot of the time when the, because again, the word production means lots of different things. It can mean, again, doing what Albini does, setting up mics and letting a band do what they do. And then can go all the way over to kind of like post-songwriting with people, which I do less of. I'm not really interested in co-writes with people. I want to capture other people's art. But like on the Grace record, for example, I basically arranged the whole record. She came in with a pile of songs. I got a friend of mine to play drums and then I played pretty much everything else. And, and that's how we put the record together. And, it, you know, whereas with Petneys, I didn't really play anything on the Petneys record. They, uh, but, but I did sit in a room with them and kind of make some suggestions about song structure and arrangement and that kind of thing. So, you know, it's a, it's a variable thing, but ultimately you're the, you're the coach, you're the Ted Lasso, um, Mr. Miyagi, however you want to put it. Like your job is you don't play on the pitch, you know what I mean? But you. You are the cheerleader, you are the coach, you are the manager, all those kinds of things. I don't really follow any sports, which is why that metaphor was bad. Um, anyway, uh, so, uh, but what a um, great fucking show. The first season was flawless. I slightly fell off it after that. Doesn't matter. Anyway, so they used one of my songs. I'm very grateful. So yeah, I love it. Like I say, I have been produced many times in my life, but it's a slightly different thing actually doing it. It's a new skill set, blah, 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 blah. But I love it. I mean, right now I am mixing a new record for the Meths. I did a two EP package for them for Broken Britain that I that was really cool. I'm at a point in my production career, if I'm allowed to say I have such a thing, where like basically listening back to stuff I did anywhere longer than six months ago makes me want to cut my own head off because 
my, hopefully my kind of rate of improvement is such. So I listened back to the mess stuff that I did like 18 months ago, two years ago, maybe. And it was just like, ah, I can do better than this. I'm having a lot of fun mixing that right now. I've mixed two out of 12 songs so far. And I'm going to do number three after this. Um, uh, but it's like the mess is really fun because they're a really simple band. It's just like one guitar player going through two amps and drums. And the, the aim of the game is kind of like energy and brutality. It's really fun just kind of essentially redlining all your compressors and just watching kind of lights blinking, going, help me while you're mixing. It's a good time. I want to do more of it. The thing that I'm having at the moment is that I got into production stuff when COVID happened, when the world slowed down, when my main part of my job got made illegal for a period of time. And it turns out that when I'm in a normal album cycle, I am quite busy, don't have all that much spare time and don't necessarily want to spend the kind of four days off I have in between tours in a studio, as opposed to, for example, talking to my wife. I'm currently in a place where I'm actually having to turn down quite a lot of stuff, which is a shame because there's a lot of great records that I would like to make. But it's a long-term plan in many ways. You know, I hope to keep doing that. I hope that at a point in time when either my physical body or the state of my career means that perhaps I can't tour as much as I used to, that I will be in the studio producing other music. Do you have a bucket list of any artists you want to work with in the studio? Um, yeah, I mean, I do. I do. It's worth starting by saying that like one of the most fun things that I've found about production stuff is working with young new bands. It's fucking cool. You know, when a band like aren't that experienced in the studio, which means they're not that jaded in the studio, you know, and there's a, just a lot of kind of excitement and piss and vinegar. And that's fucking cool to be around. And it also helps me feel less jaded. I definitely think the production work I've done in the last four years has influenced the last two records I've made in terms of like, you know, you get into that kind of Billy Corgan moment, or a lot of people do, where they suddenly decide that rock music as a concept is dead and that I must now make opera records or whatever the fuck it is. And it's just kind of like, or just hang out with some younger bands, dude. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's, there's so much cool shit going on. There are some more established, older musicians who I've had some conversations with about making a record at some point. It's probably not really my place to actually talk about that. I'll say this. I've been talking to Chuck Reagan about making a record for Chuck which would be fucking cool. But we'll see. We'll see. One thing I do want to talk to you about is Way Out Arts in Sierra Leone. How'd you, how'd you get involved with that? There's an organization called Strummerville, or the Joe Strummer Foundation, and I think they're now called officially, in the UK that was set up by Joe's family after he passed away. I, did, I never met Joe Strummer. It's a great sadness to me because it turned out that we have lots of mutual friends after he passed away, and, and God damn it. Anyway, one of the guys who works there is a guy who was one of the barmen at Nambuka back in my kind of formative part of my musical career as a bar I used to hang out at, sleep at, play shows at a long time ago. He's called Styx and Styx runs Strummerville and I've done lots of different kind of like fundraising stuff for them over the years. Show 1000 back in the midst of time was a benefit for Strummerville, stuff like that, you know. And Strummerville is basically a fundraising vehicle who they raise funds and then kind of disperse it to various charities that they work with. One of which is Way Out Arts in Sierra Leone. And about six years ago, whenever it was, 2017, I think, Styx just sent me a text and said, hey man, do you want to go to Sierra Leone? And I sort of replied like, are you high? Like, what's happening right now? Not to disrespect Sierra Leone in any way, but it's just like, what the fuck are you talking about? And uh, anyway, we got into it, he explained the situation, we went out and it was sort of, um, I mean, I'm aware, I kind of, in, uh, I sound like a kind of 
teenage college kid on a gap year when I talk about this sometimes, and I don't want to sound like that, but it like, it was a life-changing experience going there for the first time and meeting the people there. And I remember Hazel, who runs the project sort of said to me, you know, we went and like, we went to, we were in like the slums and in the, the, the real kind of poorest bits of one of the poorest countries in the world, which is not an experience that I had had before. And, um, you know, you're making friends and you're, you're trying to connect with people and the rest. And, and Hazel said to me, don't tell people you're coming back if you're not actually going to do that because they will believe you. And on top of everything else, these guys don't need disappointment. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I was like, fuck, I'm coming back. Like, and, and have been back a few times. It was difficult during the pandemic to figure out a trip. And then the political situation in Sierra Leone is not good right now. They have had... They had a horrendous civil war in 2000, 2001. I'm not sure that it's back to that level just yet, but like there is a lot of tension in the country and I've sort of been gently told to hang fire on making travel plans for a minute, which, which is a pretty conflicting thing because like, I don't want to just be like, oh, well, I'm fine. I live in London. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's kind of shitty. But I mean, at the same time, I, I really don't especially want to get caught up in a war particularly if i can avoid it either so it just like so much of working with the project it sort of highlights your privilege pretty starkly you know what i mean that i can just go well i just won't come while it's bad i mean fuck me do you know what i mean like that's yeah it's a complicated thing but i mean i've made a lot of friends i've experienced a lot of music that i didn't know about and hopefully the charity has made a difference to some people's lives I like that you do bring a, a charity and nonprofit element to a lot of what you do, like Lost Evenings and the Ally Coalition. And then on the 50 States Tour, you partnered with local nonprofits and charities. Why is that so important to you? It feels pretty kind of entry level, like least you could do kind of vibe. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I guess I don't have to do it, but like, it seems like it would be lame <laughs> to... Uh... To gather that many people together, and obviously, I mean, by the very nature of what I'm doing, gathering people together like that, I, there's a fair amount of, look at me, pay attention to me, buy my shit. You know, that's just kind of par for the course. If you can take even just a small chunk of that to direct people's attention to something that's slightly more worthwhile than my bank balance or ego or whatever the fuck it is, then that feels like a thing that's worth doing, you know? I mean, also, I think, to, to be slightly more expensive in answering that question just for a second, like, when I was a kid, you know, the thing that really struck me when I started going to punk shows as opposed to kind of rock shows, should we say, was that there was a more sort of holistic kind of vibe. There was a more... It wasn't just about, like, here's a bunch of bands you like. It's like, here is a way of engaging with the world. Here is a way of engaging with each other here is a set of you know and, and in the 90s it was all kind of vegan straight edge stuff was my experience of it and then that kind of expanded out into kind of anarchism and feminism and all those kinds of ideas um but you know broadly speaking it was it wasn't just c-band go home it was like c-band meet other people have discussion about how the world is structured go home <laughs> or whatever you know and I, and I think that's worn off on me a bit over the years. I just, I'm, I'm used to seeing kind of some sort of like literature at the merch table. Let's say that. And that, that that's something I really might personally at a loss even just seeing like different ways to, to donate or to order involved. Because for me being, being, being involved with BLM or like um, way, way Out Arts, for me being a black male in music, where I don't feel that represented, it's, it's comforting oh. to see somebody who, who, who is, who is not black to be, to get involved. 
Yeah, totally. I mean, I know you do a fair amount of benefit shows yourself, right? And so you were literally posting about one just the other day. I noticed. I think it's I think it's a good thing to do. I do think it's a kind of one of those things about punk rock. I don't want to spend my time being overly kind of like parochial about growing up with punk rock and all the rest of it. But like, I have a lot of friends in indie bands who kind of grew up and their favorite band was Oasis and they sort of played their first show when they were 22. And I'm just like, what the fuck are you doing in your life? And like, and all of the stuff we're talking about now is pretty kind of like foreign to them. And it makes kind of proud about that kind of route. And then God knows we could sit here and talk about the problems with punk rock in both in concept and execution until the fucking cows come home. But let's not do that. Let's do it. <laughs> let's 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 just take a minute to say that like you know if nothing else if if in my experience of hardcore in london is it taught a whole bunch of middle-class kids middle-class largely white kids to think about someone other than themselves then fucking a good you know good good for good for it it certainly opened my mind when i was a teenager in a way that um uh i'm sure it could u- use more of <laughs> at every stage of my life but like you know it was a good beginning Hopefully someday you can see Ian's Oasis cover that he did at karaoke New Year's Eve, because that was pretty fantastic. You know, okay, let's talk about this for a second, right? I have a story that I need to tell you. I mean, basically, basically Oasis are held in an in 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 almost bizarrely different regard in America to how they are in the UK. Um, my American friends are always surprised, and I'd be interested in your reaction to this, when I explain to them that Oasis are the British Nickelback. And I, I don't necessarily mean musically, although, but what I mean is just in terms of their, like, and I don't necessarily mean Nickelback in the States necessarily, but I don't know. It's just like they were so culturally ubiquitous. They were so kind of like lads, testosterone kind of like, you know, getting a fucking fight in a bar. And like, essentially, if you were interested in any sort of left of the dial culture or of any kind, you Oasis fans would beat you up, essentially, in the in the 90s. Like, it was grim. And I... and. And I speak from voluminous experience, you know what I mean? With the passage of time, I can spend a bit more time thinking about, like, I do think Noel Gallagher has some chops as a songwriter. I do think that the fact that a band of working class kids from Manchester taking over the entirety of the British music industry in less than three years is a remarkable thing that's worth spending some time with. But nevertheless, like, it was chauvinist. It was atavistic in a way that was just really, really alienating as a kid. Like, if you weren't... It was like... It was, it was sort of football culture took over music and football culture is extremely violent and aggressive in the UK as well. And, and I, just, I just fucking hated them as a kid. And then I know that in America, it was like they hung out with Sonic Youth and everyone in England was just like, no, Sonic Youth. No, not Oasis. Wrong, bad. Like, boo, you've got it wrong. Because if you like Sonic Youth and you were in the UK, you fucking didn't like Oasis and Oasis did not like you either. Like... It was just sort of bizarre, that crossover, I remember. And and the one I always think of, do you know the band Cave In from Boston? They're an old hardcore band. Like, they still play shows here and there. Cave In, they were one of my fucking favorite bands. Still are, actually. They didn't play the UK on their first two records. On their third album, they came through and they played um, The Underworld, which is like a 700-cat room, and it was fucking incredible. And, like, anyone who liked hardcore was there, and they were absolutely brilliant and i was in the front row losing my fucking mind singing along with every song and it might have been the perfect hardcore show and they played for an hour and 10 minutes and they went off and i was like one more song and they came back on stage triumphantly going yes we finally played london and everyone fucking loves us you guys are gonna love this one and they played an oasis cover and it was <laughs> literally the worst thing i've ever seen at a show ever because the entire room was like someone farted in their spacesuit 
It was just like, what are you doing? And they were just, they were really sort of like, they could tell something was wrong because they would have been expecting the room to erupt with joy. But it was just like, dude, if you know who cave-in are in this country, then you fucking hate boys. That's just a fucking <laughs> mathematical equation. And no one had told them this. This is a very long-winded way of saying that, like, I have at it, love Oasis. It's none of my fucking business. But, like, they occupy a distinct cultural space in British history. I feel like there are there are Creed analog then maybe more than Nickelback. Maybe yeah, maybe. But I mean, but I mean, I, it's difficult. The reason I say Nickelback, I mean, I, it's difficult to think of an, maybe even Red Hot Chili Peppers or something. They're just so ubiquitous and kind of the band that people who don't really like music say that they like. You know what I mean? Um, they're the kind of the default option on a on a checklist of what music do you listen to? And you go Red Hot Chili Peppers. I should add, and again, each to their own, I fucking hate the Red Hot Chili Peppers, but not as people, but I'm just not a fan of their music. So Caven covers Oasis. You're somebody whose songs get covered. I mean, Ian covered you on his EP. He did, which, by which I was extremely flattered and grateful, by the way, just to say that again out loud. But is that like a, is it a weird feeling somebody covering? Like, how do you react as like, I put this out into the world, now I'm getting a different version of it back to me? Oh, yeah, it's totally weird on some levels. It's kind of the most flattering thing con conceivable on some other levels that somebody would take their time and their musical skill and apply it to a thing that you wrote yourself. And I mean, I've always believed that interpretation is is as important a musical skill as anything else. So when people sort of change it up a bit or, or whatever or bring their own... um angle and their own tone or their own in interpretation is what I'm looking for here um, uh, to a song. I think that's awesome. I almost kind of prefer that to a completely straight down the line cover, you know, it is a bit weird, you know, even like, I mean, the most kind of ridiculous example for me was NoFX covering five of my songs for that split. And like the overwhelming feeling I have was like, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. This is such an honor. Oh my God, this band I've adored since I was a kid. And they're so sonically distinct as well. Do you know what I mean? That voice that guitar that drum sound all the rest of it but there's still a little part of me that's kind of like that's the wrong chord and i know that they know it's the wrong chord or whatever or like oh you got the words wrong or whatever because you're i mean Ian, you'll say this well you're protective of your songs right they go a certain way you spent some fucking time making them go that way you made them go that way and not that way and so like it can be a little kind of there is a little part of me that's a little kind of like digging its <laughs> heels in but, but I mean, the, the actual answer is that like, I mean, you know, if you, the, the music history is replete with incredible cover versions. I mean, fucking hell, starting with the fact that most of the early kind of rock and roll singers didn't write their own material. So it's all interpretation. But, you know, Joe Cocker's Little Help With My Friends is a lot better than the Beatles version. Absolutely. It might be one of my favorite pieces of music ever recorded, actually. I will just throw this out that if you two ever do a split together where you cover each other like West Coast versus Wessex... Albion versus Appalachia. That's got to be the name. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. Nice. I like that. Do you yeah, say Appalachia I, or Appalachia? I don't know. I mean, tell me. I don't know. I, th I think I think people would say that are from the area, they would say Appalachia. Am I correct, Ian? Because you're Appalachian and I am not. Well, it's technically for both of us. So my, so my opinion is invalid anyway. But I, okay. but I, I, I think it, I think it's Appalachia. I'm pretty sure. My friends, okay. if they listen to us, they'll, they'll, they'll yell for it. If not, but, but yeah, well, so I, you're a lot closer to than either of us do, so we'll we'll. Uh. 
But yeah, I, I originally chose um, Dream of the Magic, I guess, because when I first started doing stuff with Black Knight Fox, that was the song that kind of talked. I, I was very skittish about what to do. I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen in, in the long run of this, but that song kind of taught me, dude, just have fucking fun. Just just go along this journey, just and just see what happens. And that's mm-hmm. something I learned from just from your music, honestly, where I just learned just, just enjoy the just enjoy the journey. That's a, a a generous thing to say, and I appreciate that enormously. And 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 indeed, many years after writing the song, I still back that idea. I mean, who fucking knows what any of us are doing? But like, if you're having a good time sharing music with people, then you know, I think that in the, in my experience of life generally, but let's be more specific, music <laughs> music is that like there's lots of ups and downs, difficult bits, confusing bits, and all the rest of it. But every now and again, you just have one of those moments where you're like, I think I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing right now because you're in the right room with the right people making the right noises you know what i mean i felt like that watching your show last evening's in i felt like yeah this is this is what's supposed to be happening in this part of the world at this moment in time and i'm glad i'm here he was so great that a random stranger threw underwear at him when it was over (laughs) it wasn't me i promise it was me (laughs) it wasn't random it was planned i gave him his tom jones moment If there's one thing I do remember, Frank, from having you on a previous show is that you really love quickfire games. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I've seen, well, I'm not very quick on the quickfire bit because as you've already noticed today, I like to just fucking talk forever. But uh, I'm getting better at training myself to remember that quickfire means quick. Well, Ian, would you like to introduce the segment and I'll edit me saying that out? Oh, no, no, no. Keep it in. Keep it in. (laughs) Good Lord. Come on. This segment is called Surprise, Motherfucker. (laughs) <laughs> oh shit i'm i'm nervous now so we got some quick fire questions for you my first one i have for you is what is your mount rushmore of iron maiden albums i made of iron maiden albums oh my god jesus so that's four and much more is that right yeah fucking hell man like <laughs> um killers uh number of the beast uh, seven son of a seven son and fuck everybody. Um, and, uh, and then maybe like, I want to put in something like book of souls. Do you know what I mean? I really, really love the more recent stuff. This isn't quick. I told you, there we go. That's my answer. Yeah. <laughs> okay. For something you said in interviews and something I've, I've witnessed with pet needs and lots of people from the UK, I need your Mount Rushmore of shitty American beers. <laughs> Oh, is this a, is this an entirely Mount Rushmore themed quote? No, fire? okay, right, fine. Yeah. fine. I mean, well, it's worth saying that, like, um, I, I mean, I know, I know what you mean, and I'm going to answer in the spirit of it. But I fucking like shitty American. Yeah. I don't think oh, they're same. Yeah, I mean, um, Bud Light, PBR, um, Michelob Ultra. <laughs> that's a that's a is that that's a kind of a cheapy beer, right? And oh, then God. Lone Star. Okay. I always say Ultra is the LaCroix of beer. It's like, it, it's just flavored with enough beer that you that you get the feeling of beer. Exactly. Which means you can drink more of it, which is the fucking point. What, one more Mount Rushmore. Mount Rushmore of Black Artists. Mount Rushmore of Black Artists. Okay, that's a good question. Uh, my first two are easy because it's Nina Simone and uh, James Brown. There's a, by the way, there's a book about James Brown called The One, which is one of the most transformative books about music I've ever read in my fucking life. Like, totally just... I'm going to put... Can I just put Bad Brains in one slot on there, please? Um, yeah. Thank you. That's very generous. 
um and then uh i mean that's difficult because like may i remind you i'm right here huh yeah okay <laughs> yeah there we go and and black guy folks there we go done easy i wow. mean you beat out sam cookie and you did well then but see here's what i was gonna do i was gonna cheat by the way for my for, for my fifth slot which is to put holland does your holland in there Oh. Because essentially, like all of sixty zero Motown is just completely fucking sensationally unbeatable to me. But you don't. You, I mean, do you put Barry Gordy up there? Maybe I don't know. Like uh, he's famously not the nicest dude in in music history. <laughs> but like, um, but it, I mean, what he achieved is is incredible. But I mean, I could essentially you put you you, you know what I mean. All this and and kind of the Levi Stubb stuff as well. Just that that kind of like classic sixty zero Motown is music that I will never ever tire of. Sneaking out of the game for a second, uh, you and I are basically the same age. We have a couple years difference. I'm clearly the older one. No. Is a love for this stuff like stuff that you also got from like your parents and grandparents? Because like I listen to music from like the 20s through the 70s almost exclusively when I'm not listening to like m other stuff. Is that like where it I, I didn't get any music off my parents? Um, no, I don't believe in modern music. I mean, I didn't say no music. There's some bits and bobs of classical music which I sort of I. I I spent a long time trying to pretend I was better versed in classical music than I am. I mean, I know a little bit of it. You know what I mean? I, I'm not that fucking bloody duh. But um, my mom and dad don't really believe in drum kits. I mean, they don't believe in the Beatles or anything. Like, it's all the music I have. It's a, a very small amount of it came via my older sister through the bedroom wall. But essentially, I'm a musical autodidact, which is why so, quite a lot of the time my understanding music is a bit weird because, for example, the the example I always think of is like I was I was intimately familiar with the Miniman song Bob Dylan writes propaganda songs before I'd ever heard any songs by Bob Dylan because I got into punk and hardcore metal and then punk and hardcore and then went hey I should probably listen to the, these Beatles guys at some point you know what I mean <laughs> like so or or indeed Sam Cooke or whatever you know like so my my whole sort of understanding was upside down Chuck D goes on Mount Rushmore as well sorry I've just I mean. You get me, Ian, I'm not going to do this now for several obvious reasons, but if you put a certain amount of whiskey in me, I can rap about half of Nation of Millions. Not well. I didn't say well. I didn't say it's a good sound. But what I'm saying is I know the words. I need this so bad. I need. Yeah, well, I'm, it's not going to happen now because I, I'm I'm sober as a dog right now. So I'll see you I in mean, space. With Ian yeah, well, before swimming, you covered Irving Berlin. You can cover Chuck D. Yeah, you can get away with it. I... Mm, I, I, no. I'm going to be self-aware enough to know that that's not the thing that I should do. At a certain point in your life, you know your strengths and your weaknesses yeah. a little. You know what I mean? If you do, you have to PayPal Ian $5, though. Okay, deal. Done. Fine. <laughs> my, my, my Black Round Mount Rushmore is getting crowded now, but I think that's yeah. a good thing. We should probably explain the $5 thing. So uh, my, my friend Jacob Matthews or something, he, he's, he's learned to do better when it comes to anti-racism. So I, so I tell him, when he says something racist, you owe me $5. <laughs> so, I, I made about 30 in one day and I'm proud of I mean I, well that's good for you I'm not sure how that is that an improvement for, I don't really know how to feel about that impression he, he, he's doing better I'll say that he's, he is doing okay that's, that's good I'm very glad to hear it I'm very glad to hear it so you, you played with Billy Bragg Springsteen and now Pedro the Lion who's left on your bucket list that you would that you would die to play with oh I mean um I mean, lots of people. One of one of them's on the bill for last evenings next this coming year. 
And I'm not going to tell you who that is while we're recording. I mean, my kind of great white whale, if that's not a terrible description of another human being, is Nick Cave. I'm I'm very, very, very into Nick Cave. And more so as time goes by, he's since the death of his son and that kind of creative, uh, appalling tragedy in the creative reimagining that's come with that, I have found his work yet more impactful. There's a book he wrote with Sean O'Hagan called Faith, Hope and Carnage, which is incredible. And if you read that book and then go back and listen to Ghost Teen again, it's like a different album. It's fucking unbelievable. Yeah, Nick Cave. There we go. There's your answer. And then one last one that we ask everybody before we wrap up the game. If you have musical guilty pleasures, what's your Mount Rushmore of guilty musical pleasures? I don't have any guilty pleasures because I couldn't give a fuck what anyone thinks yes. about my taste in music. Thank you very much. <laughs> And I and I I just I kind of reject the concept of guilty pleasures. Who gives a fuck, man? And like you know, I think I've I've spoken about this in public a fair amount. One of my favorite bands of all time is ABBA, and I I feel pretty strongly that if as if you're somebody who writes songs for a living and you don't like ABBA, then you're you're not listening to them properly. I know that's actually a dumb thing to say because all art is subjective, ultimately. But there is just such unbelievable skill and originality to the way that they constructed their songs that like at the very least it has to be interesting to you as a songwriter you know what i mean it's just like their first single waterloo starts with the root and then goes to a major second and then to, then modulates to a different key on the third chord of the entire fucking song it's just kind of like eh um like yeah they're fucking brilliant and but i'm not i don't i don't care what people think i i think taylor swift is a fucking amazing songwriter that is an opinion that I've kind of largely in, uh, been brought to <laughs> kicking and screaming by my wife. But like we went to see the concert film that was out recently at the cinema for my wife's birthday because because I'm a nice guy. It was an incredible creative piece of work, let's say, like as a show, as a production, as a dance thing, as a sonic experience. But there's a bit in the middle where she plays a song called You're On Your Own Kid on her own at the piano and in front of like 80,000 people. And there is just such a titanic dose of like pretty naked sexism about people having a go at Taylor Swift. She's self-evidently an utterly epochally remarkable human being and writer and entertainer. And like people getting all snarky about that. It's just kind of like you would not be saying this since you was a man. The end. And and yet she is doing better, I think, than any like, I mean, really, Harry Styles? Fuck Harry Styles, man. Like, no. <laughs> Taylor Swift and Harry Styles are in different leagues. In my opinion, Harry Styles wrote his whole last record in conjunction with a guy called Kid Harpoon who used to live in Nambuka and we used to hang out. Old friend. Anyway, but like, I don't know why I'm talking about this now, but like, I love Taylor Swift and that's, um, but I, I don't have a, a Mount Rushmore of guilty pleasure. <laughs> you saying fuck yourself just made, just made my day. That, that, okay. That hilarious. It's your new ringtone. <laughs> I mean, listen, well, that, 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 as it was or whatever it is, that's a fucking catchy song. Let's be honest about it. Yeah. I like, there is a, there is a degree to which, like, when you kind of hear people kind of from the kind of more independent underground world kind of slagging off the most successful song in the whole world, it's just a little bit kind of like, you would have written that fucking song if you could, dickhead. Do you know what I mean? It's just like, you know, writing pop music is actually quite hard, I think. Uh, it's certainly not a thing I know how to do. So, anyway, moving on. We are, we are going we are coming to the end of this room closes out. So you want to market anything that you want that you have coming up here soon then? I mean, you know, Undefeated's coming out on the 3rd of May. May the 3rd be with you, as I'm going to keep saying for the next few months. I'm really fucking stoked about it. And also, okay, I mean, I'm talking to you guys here in, in the United States. So 
it's okay. You guys are first in the queue. We're, we're going to be announcing a lot of tour dates around the world. We're starting with the US tour, but the other places are also coming. We are going to go everywhere. Please don't shout at me because Scunthorpe is not on the US tour. It's Scunthorpe <laughs> in England. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm stoked about that. I mean, depending on when this is released into the world, some of those dates may be out or not, but like we're going to be around a lot of the world and it's awesome and I'm excited about it. Well, Frank, thank you so much for uh, giving us your time today. It is my absolute pleasure. It's lovely to speak to you both, Ian. I'm excited for the next time we share a stage together, wherever that may be in the world, and for new music that you've got coming. I do want to say, I do want to give you your flowers. So I I discovered you back in, like, now 12 years ago, back to listening to FFR Shape for the first time, then seeing Larry and Splask and Jenny Owens Young, Jenny Owens Young, and then hearing you, my favorite memory, is you talking show Nicki Minaj. God. I, that I was, remember that vividly. That was early doors of, of like Twitter is the, the first thing I would say about that. You know what I mean? Like, I think all of us, particularly me, were not fully aware of what a fucking monster Twitter certainly could be back then. I mean, I maintain that she behaved like a dickhead in the brief time that we were in the same field. Also, I don't care, like, at all. Good luck to Nicki Minaj. I hope that she, I hope she does well in her career. Back when I first heard Love Iron Song, that's when I realized I, I love your music. Then I, well, I play a lot. I've said to myself, that's how I want to do that. Play music. Then when I heard you talk, talk that shit, I'm like, that's my fucking hero. I love him so much. <laughs> I mean, song. yeah, she, like I say, she was not endearing herself to, it wasn't just me. I'm just the one who put it on Twitter, but there was, she was not <laughs> endearing herself to the collective company in which she found herself at that moment in time. But hey, um, you know, you shouldn't judge people by their bad days. <laughs> And I'll and I'll just personally thank you for uh, being indirectly responsible for my dumbest tattoo that I've ever gotten, which is at Lost Evenings. Oh, that's a fucking great tattoo! <laughs> oh my goodness! So, Ian, you've you've met Dougie, my production manager, Dougie. Yeah, Dougie has no tattoos, but I have pointed out to him several times that Doug Life would make one fucker of a knuckle tattoo, <laughs> and and he's just like. I don't want any tattoos, and even if I did, I'm not starting with my hands. And I'm like, fuck off, man. Just get it done. Come on. Don't fuck about. Without you, I'll not start this project at all. And I can guarantee there, there's been a record every time I like when I needed it. And I tweeted this at the end of Los Angeles. Thank you for giving me hope and just help me to carry on, just continue just living and doing this. Like, truly, thank you for this. That's right. a wonderful thing for you to say, man. And like, let me say this, like, you know, ultimately... I've been in this for a long time now. I hope I'll do it for a lot longer. Who fucking knows? But like at a certain point, it's just kind of like, I think you start understanding that like this whole thing is a chain. It's a relay race. Do you know what I mean? And it's like you pick it up off somebody else and then you pass it on to somebody else at the end if if you do it well. Do you know what I mean? So if there's anybody who's thought about playing any music because of what I do, then I'm about as stoked as a human could be. So thank you very much for saying that. This show is the brainchild of Black Guy Fox folk punk rio you can find him on all the social medias as black guy fox or black guy fox music as well as on his website blackguyfox.com the intro and outro are both from the song new american meltdown by black guy fox so that's legally covered because this is his podcast and that is his song available on the album life love and the bomb additional music elements provided by fab shop music a royalty-free music subscription service for podcast hosts and YouTube creators. More info at fabshopmusic.com. 
Sound design and editing by Ed Cunard, who appears courtesy of his dog and many, many cats. Cover art by Jacob Matthews, a pal who has been down since day one. Fox and Friends is hosted on Spotify for podcasters. Listen on Spotify for the best experience because we can't play everyone's songs in full legally anywhere else. Finally, while Fox and Friends firmly believes that punk rock is and should be a safe space, we know it can't be safe for everyone without excluding bad elements. So remember, remember. So tell your local Nazis that they're fascist to fuck off. How do you say Appalachia? Did I say that right? Yeah, Appalachia. All right. Because I, although I am technically Appalachian, I don't claim it. I, I, I was born in the bougie part, <laughs> in the dirty dancing part. The dirty dancing part. I grew up at a resort, dude. My life was dirty dancing from 13 to like 18. I was a Patrick Swayze. I was the cousin who handed baby a watermelon. She's in fucking movie. I love that fucking movie. You want to make me cry? Like, put on that last scene because I will have open waterworks every time they do the lift. Every time. I will cry.